0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today I'm with author, culinary historian and journalist Veronica Hinky on a joint production of the food and history channels of the network. We're here to discuss Veronica's new book, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking and Dining in Style, which was published earlier this year by Regnery History, and I am delighted that it brings Veronica to the New Books Network. Veronica, welcome. Hello, Jennifer. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Oh, I'm so delighted to be talking with you. You have such a professional life. You are, I mean, it's fascinating. You're an author, you're a journalist, you're a food critic. You write an incredibly well-known annual roundup of the 50 best things you ate this year, which I think is amazing. And you're also something of a mixologist. Is that right? Yes.
1: All of the above. Okay. Right?
0: Tell our listeners how you knitted all these different aspects um, together uh, and then how all of that brought you to write about the Titanic. Well, you know, it's easy, really, when I think about it, to
1: knit something like this book together, as you put it. That's a great expression. And it's easy because over the years, the one thing I've come to learn, any food story at the heart, it's always about the people. And oh, that's so yeah, true. It's, it is so true. It's, you, you know, you go and you talk to a chef, you go in for a recipe and you come out with some really neat words of inspiration or a story of where they've helped people or, um you know, all sorts of different things. And so I wanted to, more than anything else, honor these people who experienced this tragedy and the way that I found to do that, Jennifer, was to look at their stories through the lens of culinary, mostly. You know, we also look at fashion and, uh, music and other, um, emblems of, of style of the, of the era. But through food, we're able to look at the different people that had associations with food and we, um, we see people in these stories from people who tucked away menus into their jacket pocket before they went, you know, into a lifeboat or.
0: Yeah. Why, why would they do that? Do you think I was, I, I was, that came up because it comes up in your book again and again, is that the menu was tucked into somebody's jacket. Why, why would they do that? Well,
1: you know, this was the dream ship. And so many people knew that at the time. You know, I'm sure that no one knew it would end up having this type of legacy like it still has today. But even during that time, they knew they were on a really special ship. So any kind of souvenir. And also, I think, you know, I've always been a foodie. I still have my Air France menu from 1984 when I went to Paris as a kid and Yeah, I've got it. You know, I tucked it away. and probably nobody else on the plane did, or maybe a few people did, but it's probably the only one, you know, still around from that flight from Chicago to Paris years ago. And those were the kinds of people that I wanted to really daylight in the book and tell their story because they were obviously passionate about the food that was on board. Um, there was even one example of a menu that was so precious to people that um, they signed it. The people that this man was eating with, they, they they signed their names on it.
0: As far as I understand, that that's a that was a something people did in the Gilded Age. Was they if there was a special event, they would all sign the menu as a souvenir. Is that right? Uh huh. Okay. Let's go back um, briefly to your sort of all-consuming passion for the Titanic. When did that start? How did it start? And um, just a little bit about, because this has been a decades-long fascination for you as far as I understand.
1: When I was a little girl, I heard about a man who was a popcorn vendor in my hometown. And uh, he was on the Titanic. And I grew up in a very small isolated community at the time it was isolated now it's much more metropolitan but uh, it was just amazing to me how did this man get on a ship like the Titanic what was his story and so from the age of nine on I wanted to learn everything I could about this ship and when I was in seventh grade I was in the class that you know everyone looked forward to getting into seventh grade in school because our English teacher in seventh grade would read Walter Lord's book to us, which, of course, is a night to remember. And she would read it page by page and stop and give us her cliff notes and anecdotes. And I, I was hooked.
0: OK, because <laughs> it's, it's a very glamorous story, but it's also, of course, quite tragic. Um, as a 12 year old, did that not disturb you?
1: Definitely. And I think what's really fascinating about the Titanic is that it does have this glamorous side to the story that can, in many ways, uh, override the the negative. And I think that's what food stories do so much. You know, that's why I love covering food, one of the many reasons.
0: And so let's get back to the, the food on the Titanic. Um, You've had this passionate interest in in the ship and and its fate. What led you to the food part of it?
1: Well, I knew in 2011 that within a year we would be celebrating, honoring the 100th anniversary of the Titanic. And as a food writer, I thought, what can I do to be involved and to do something to honor the ship in that centennial year? 2012. So I came up with several different angles to look at. Um, I thought of Popcorn Dan, the man from my hometown area. And what I landed on was a story with the Wine Enthusiast Magazine about the wines and cocktails that were aboard the ship. And I was able to stitch that story together through the data that I researched um, through the premier exhibitions company, which at that time had all of the rights to the, um, things that were found at the Ruck site. And the data was incredible. It was a whole spreadsheet of everything from champagne bottles to Grand Marnier, you know, um, all sorts of different, um, things that weren't always that popular. In later years, creme de mint, for instance, <laughs> used it. We don't see that in so many drinks anymore. Um, but that was a, a more popular ingredient back in those days. So those things that were on the data sheet that I pulled really tell the story of what, was, what people were drinking back then. And we looked at places like Delmonico's New York City and Antoine's in New Orleans, places that were there then that are still there. And by looking at those places and what people were eating there then in in 1912, we could get a pretty good idea of what they probably were eating and drinking aboard the Titanic. So that was another thing that I looked at.
0: And this is where the culinary aspect of your book comes in, because not only is this uh, a wonderful book about maritime history and an iconic disaster, as well as – sort of a culinary overview. It's also a cookbook. You provide some amazing recipes um, for cocktails and dishes that were served in all the different classes of service. So this has to have been a gargantuan research project.
1: It was pretty phenomenal. It took many years. And I, I love that I was able to include things from all classes. Thank you for mentioning that, Jennifer, because we really wanted to look at the Glamour, but also, I think the story that needs to be told is about the, f- the full you know all the different classes and um the all of the recipes are not necessarily things that were aboard the Titanic, but uh some of them are a little bit of a stretch, so to speak. There were things that we could maybe think in terms of um like for instance, spring peas were ubiquitous aboard the Titanic because it was springtime, um, right? So lots of spring peas, and they weren't as integrated into recipes like they are these days. So there are a few recipes like the modern-day English spring pea soup that Chef Michael Laschewitz contributed. He's from um, the Chicago area. And so that's an example. There, There was pea soup. Aboard the Titanic, but it wasn't necessarily the, exactly the same kind of thing that we have in the book. Um, but then there are some recipes that are awfully close, like the apple meringue that I love. And it was, uh, it was contributed by, uh, Gail Gant, another Chicago chef. But that's not to say that all the chefs are from Chicago. There were chefs that I met from around the world. I, and I became good friends with them online um one of them is from johannesburg south
0: africa oh, wow wow yeah <laughs> this is like I, a global project
1: it, it really was and uh new zealand i was looking for recipes for tripe They're not that easy to find <laughs> that was a third class menu item and i uh, you know i found people with legacy recipes heirloom recipes from their grandparents and um one of those was a recipe from Sonia Geyer in uh, Johannesburg. And we're in contact almost every day now. It, it's just been an amazing collaborative project.
0: Well, and the, because the interest in the Titanic, I think, is universal. It, it's not just an Anglo-American, Anglo-Irish, uh, Irish-American uh, phenomenon. I think everybody finds it fascinating. And part of the reason, of course, is the iconic film, but also um, the return of the glamour of travel um, by by Ocean liner which is very popular nowadays, but times have changed. And maybe you can, for our listeners benefits, you can tell us about the different class of services that were on the Titanic and what kind of people might've been traveling in each class and why.
1: Sure. Well, you know, the big thing here that I think is one of the reasons Titanic is still so prevalent today and such a beloved topic is because after world war one, we have never since seen the three great class divides, pretty much three great class divides between first, second, and third classes. And nowhere can you see that more obviously than in travel. And we still see it today even on airplanes with the class divides, but it, it's nothing now like it was back in the Edwardian era. And it was a very formal division. And, um, you know, there were no last minute, well, there were some, upgrades but they probably weren't as um common as they are now
0: people one of the have, biggest people was, didn't have frequent titanic cards right <laughs> <laughs> i'm a platinum member what do you mean i'm in second class <laughs>
1: yeah so there's there are little ways now that we have to kind of wiggle into different uh, lifestyles and th- those didn't exist back then you had to either be a millionaire or you were not going to be in first class um and the, one of the biggest things that I noticed in examining these menus and looked at them a lot, um, was that in third class in steerage, the big meal of the day, the hearty meal was midday. That's where we saw like on, uh, the last day on the Titanic on the 14th, Sunday the 14th, they had beef and gravy and potatoes. And then they had tea. You know, later in the day they'd always have a little tea and um, you know, biscuits and things to go along with it, um, cold meat, pickles, fresh bread and butter. There was even some stewed figs and rice for tea for high tea on April 14th in steerage. And then for supper though, there was just a real um staple kind of uh you know, sustenance really more than anything. It was cabin biscuits, cheese, and are you ready for this? Gruel. Oh, no. So that, so that was the last meal in uh, third class on the time. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. And, um, but it's actually still a lovely meal that they had uh, compared to other places where they would have been traveling in those days.
0: Okay. Who would have been traveling in steerage?
1: Well, the person that I mentioned earlier, Popcorn Dan, Daniel Coxon, who was an Englishman living in Wisconsin at the time. He had migrated from England many years earlier. He was in his early 50s. And, um, you know, there's a picture of him in the book, a picture that I love of him in a newspaper boy's cap, kind of a shabby look. I mean, I don't mean shabby in a bad way, but just like a real run of the mill street jacket um you know shabby compared to you know like what John Jacob pastor the Fourth was wearing you know an ascot tie and a, a tuxedo um and most times anyway, most times anyway, and um he would have been you know he had a scruffy beard, wasn't perfectly trimmed um, so a little bit more casual not. I don't want to say casual, not as as expensive looking, you know, well, but he,
0: still dress nice. But he wouldn't have been expected to dress for dinner.
1: Right, right. He wouldn't be expecting to dress for dinner at all. And not like they did in first class.
0: But what about second class? That seems like sort of a, a mushy area. Like I think we understand Im- immigrant people coming um, in steerage and, Glamorous first class people. But what about second class? What was that like?
1: Second class was much, a noticeable, um, step up, you know, in, in, in fashion with, um, you know, nothing as daring and show offy as the hobble skirts like you would have seen in first class or the, those fabulous clothes like we saw in James Cameron's movie Titanic that Kate Winslet was wearing. Nothing that fantastic but a little bit more scaled down but still nice and I'm sure there were women who had been to Paris recently that got their new spring clothes that they were wearing but they just weren't from the the best of the best um tailors and um you know the fashions then were um very different skirts went all the way to the ankle you did not ever see a skirt go above the ankle um and, you know, there were, there were distinctive styles in shoes with a curvy, thick, chunky heel being one of the popular styles of the day. Um, one of the women that I write about in the book is Lucy Jeff Gordon, who was one of the fashion icons of the day. And her fashion lives on in so many ways. And um, I see it every time I watch Downton Abbey. You know, it's, ah. it's, that's really, if you want to describe her fashion, uh, that, that's where you can see it in that show, Downton Abbey.
0: Well, of course, Downton Abbey opens with the sinking of the Titanic, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: yes. Exactly. <laughs> because it's the, it's the inciting incident of the whole first series. Yes. Yeah. Um, so were there three different kitchens um, for the three different classes of service, or was it just one big kitchen?
1: There were actually many kitchens, and in first class, there were kitchens that were dedicated with French chefs, and those were for um, the chefs who were hired by the Italian entrepreneur Luigi Gatti. Um, he was hired because French cuisine was just so uh, sought after in those days. Uh, you know, in those days, there weren't the, the great chefs from Great Britain, like we know today, um, like many of the ones in my book. Um, You know, there's Emmett McCourt and um, so many different uh, fabulous chefs that are in the book from uh, Great Britain. And and this was long before that time. So they looked to France and Italy for much of their um, culinary inspirations. So they actually hired a concessionaire. Luigi Gatti to come in and run French uh, restaurants and French kitchens. And they had French staff, for the most part, for, you know, in many cases. I shouldn't say for the most part, but there were many cases of of actual people from France. Um, And in fact, uh, there was a very alarming headline that I came across in my research. And it said, Titanic cooks drowned like rats. And I thought, what happened here? Well, it turned out that because the concessionaire staff was not part of the Titanic, the White Star Line staff, and they weren't passengers, they were not able to get up to the boat deck to try to get it off. So many of them drowned. And that all came out. Yeah. And it came out during the British inquiry into the
0: Titanic. Because they would have been down at the bottom. Is right. that right? Right.
1: Yeah. yeah and one of them, Paul Mogay, who was working with um uh one of the French chefs, one of the uh you know people that did not make it off, he survived Paul Mogay survived and told the story of what happened, and it was very convincing the way he describes it in the in the inquiry, which is it's available you know to the public. Anyone can read that.
0: and you must have gone through it very carefully.
1: Yes, I did. I found a lot of really intriguing things in it. For instance, um, you know, the fabulous story of the baker, who was English. And he was always known in history as the drinker that he had been drinking. And everyone always thought it was a bottle of scotch. And what I found out was that he was drinking, but it was his great-niece told me that it was actually, according to him, schnapps. And the baker that I'm talking about is Charles Jockin. And Charles Jocken it just has an incredible story. He uh, was raised in England, but as a young boy, had to leave school to start working on the sea. And he had worked in many capacities. He was actually trained as a pastry chef. But on the Titanic, he was a baker and he was in charge of getting the bread onto the lifeboats after the Titanic struck the iceberg. Um, he has a, a really intriguing story to tell uh, 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 that happened to him about his fate, which he did not let make him a victim. On the Thursday before the Titanic struck the iceberg, he noted his life raft assignment, his lifeboat assignment, for where he would be expected to go to man a lifeboat if there was an emergency or disaster, which there ended up being. And, you know, he was no stranger to the sea, so He had been through similar things like that, and he knew he needed to check that out. Well, on Sunday night, when it came time for him to board that lifeboat, you know, he had been helping get the lifeboats boarded. And when it was time for him to get an assignment to go into a lifeboat, he didn't get assigned, he did not get the orders to board. And that's when he went down back downstairs, back to his quarters, and drank. He said he had a nip. He told the British, "Yeah, he had a nip." And you know who wouldn't at a point like that, where you you've been told you're going to be manning this lifeboat, and you don't get the orders to go in, someone else does. He comes back upstairs, and he sees that all the lifeboats are gone at this point, and he thinks look at these chairs, the deck chairs, big, heavy wooden chairs. He thought, if I can throw these all into the water, maybe there will be one that I can hold on to when I'm in that water. And I was just so inspired by the people who thought like that. Like, don't react, act. You know, it always, yeah, inspires me to remember that. Like, don't react, act. What are you going to do about your situation?
0: And that gives a new understanding to the expression to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, doesn't it?
1: It sure does. New, it, yes, <laughs> I love that, Jennifer. I'm going to steal that. That's really because you,
0: you can have that one for free. <laughs> no, but it's true because I just uh, recently somebody was using that expression, and I said, "Oh, I'm reading this fantastic book about the last night on the Titanic and the food." And um, we, but that's pretty mainstream. Uh, expression, I think. Um, but now we know that they turned out to be super useful,
1: right? Yeah, in this case, they sure did. And then They sure did. His story gets even better. He just continues to to press on and he holds on. So to he, makes he, he makes it. He makes it. He makes it, yeah.
0: How many of the crew did make it?
1: Um, as far as numbers and to give a specific number, it's hard to tell. Because, you know, some of the bodies were never recovered. Um, some of the people perished later on because even the ones that made it into the water, um, you know, to fight for their lives and try to get into a lifeboat, many of them died of hypothermia later.
0: But not not this guy because he had the schnapps.
1: Well, and I don't know if I think that that is why. I, I mean, oh, well, I, I think I, definitely, yeah. Well, maybe it did help. Yeah, I think there is yeah, I think so. a theory out there that it definitely might have helped.
0: Could have kept things sort of warm enough to to go. Um, when you were doing your research, did you, I mean, did you have to go far and wide? Did you go to Ireland? Did you go to England? Where, where does someone go to, you know, research the Titanic?
1: Well, I would have gone to London, Ireland, if I had been able to halfway through of the project i was i got a call one day and and the reason i'm telling you this is so you know how inspiring this was for me to do this research at this point in my life i got a call one day that my mother had died suddenly and it was just out of the blue she had been in perfect health and then 6 months later i found out i had triple negative breast cancer so i literally did this book while i was going through surgeries treatments Not so much the treatments because I had already turned the book in in February. The treatments were more in March and April. But the reason I'm telling you this is because I had to do as much as I could from, I was in Washington, D.C. part of the time, um, Chicago, New York. And I did a lot of my research through old newspapers. I loved researching old headlines like the one I mentioned earlier. Um, Thank goodness a lot of this information is online. And then my favorite way was, as I mentioned earlier, meeting people through Facebook, um, you know, finding them through the internet and talking to survivor uh, relatives who heard their stories. That was one really goal of my big goal of mine. And I found some of those folks kind of through the grapevine. You know, I would talk to one, and they would say, well, you should talk to so-and-so. And um, it wasn't easy. It was not easy so to locate them, but I did.
0: built a whole whole new community for yourself.
1: For me, yeah. I really did. Yeah. And um, it, it, I can't tell you the joy that we've all felt getting to know each other. I uh, I, I really got a, and had a really neat treat. Um, one of the ladies that I met through the internet, Astra Burka. Was able to come to my book party at Dalmatico's in New York in April, on April 15th. Uh, oh, the, wow. Yeah, the 107th <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> the actual day. Yeah. And she well, was, I'm
0: glad you're. How is your health now? Are you are you in good shape? I am
1: in good shape.
0: I'm, oh, I'm that's completely good to in know. The
1: clear. Very blessed. And I have to tell you, the, one of the reasons I share that story is because. You know, can you imagine going to work, dealing with all that, and then coming home and writing stories about this topic? And a friend of mine reminded me. She said, "These people are the wind beneath your wings, keeping you up. Yeah, this, the inspiration, in other words."
0: Which which leads us, I think, very very elegantly to um, Margaret Brown or the unsinkable Molly Brown, who you go into in some detail. Um, she was on the ship. She helped a lot of the women in her lifeboat sort of keep their spirits up. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about her?
1: I'm so glad you asked, you know, Scott rank, the host of history unplugged. We produced a podcast, a whole episode um, trilogy or uh, several more than a trilogy, but several different um, episodes of the Titanic series. And, you know, we actually had one episode dedicated just to Molly Brown. Oh, wow. And that is because she is so amazing. That woman is incredible. Um, can
0: you, for our listeners, can you, I mean, cause I think people know that she was on the Titanic, but they don't know maybe her backstory. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating one. It's sure And is. you do it so well in the book.
1: Well, thank you. She was a rags to riches story. And, through the all of the media that I've seen throughout the years, the depiction of Molly Brown aligned more with the quote that I thought she said um, about not wanting to marry a poor man. And her great granddaughter clarified for me that the quote that Molly actually said was, I would rather marry a poor man that I love than a rich man that I didn't. And I don't think that. And she did. uh, And she, and she did. She married, exactly. She married a very poor man who was on the verge of becoming incredibly wealthy. Um, he made it big in the mining industry and, um, they came into fabulous wealth and she traveled all over the world. She came from a little mining town in Colorado and here she, um, you know, is traveling around the world with John Jacob Astor IV and his 19 year old new bride and, um, you know, the, uh, Guggenheims and, you know, the Vanderbilts. She was right there with all of them. And, um, many people would have maybe kicked back at that point in their lives. Molly did nothing but that. She, yes, you know, she was a, a force. She was always thinking about other people. Very philanthropic, doing things for the, Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, bringing gifts for the staff, um, putting trees in the lobby, bringing things for the children that were needy in Denver at the time. She lived in Denver. Um, She was also very well known for uh, organizing a group of men, mostly men, um, uh, aboard the Carpathia. And she got something going that first morning in the wee hours of the 15th was when uh, the passengers who survived were picked up by the Carpathia and she organized these men to honor Captain Rostron of the Carpathia and his crew because they braved through iceberg infested waters to get right. to those people to bring them aboard. And they didn't have to do that.
0: But they did. Yeah. And they saved them. Yeah. And then they, because they certainly would have died without the Carpathia.
1: E- Isn't that right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Many ships were afraid to go in to get them because they might hit an iceberg too. Um, Right. And then what really amazed me was to, to hear the story of how Molly encouraged the women in her lifeboat to stay warm by rowing. And she organized, you know, shifts for them to row through the night. And I just, I know that we all would love to think that we would behave that way in a situation like Molly was in.
0: Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we would all all hope that way. Um, and she's in the film of Titanic. I think Kathy Bates plays her. Is that right?
1: Yes. And um, yeah. she does a great job portraying Yeah, Molly she does. And I just, I personally would like to see that heartfelt side to her shown more. And mm-hmm. I think that I did a, a good job of that in this book. And I'm so grateful to her. Great granddaughter for enlightening me to the real Molly Brown.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think one of the more intriguing for me recipes in the book is her artichoke souffle. I'm definitely going to try that in the very near future. Um, but let's talk about a few of the other recipes and more about the food a little bit. One thing that really blew me away was the amount of food provisioned for the ship. You talk about 4000 oysters being brought on in Ireland. I mean it, they and they had state of the art kitchens and they must have had very sophisticated refrigeration because they would have been provisioning for what's a 7-day what, voyage. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I mean talk a little bit about the the machinery down in the kitchens and the um what produced the sorbets and the um all of these amazing uh, confectioneries, the, the chocolate eclairs and the all these amazing desserts, baked Alaska.
1: Well, it was definitely state of the art. I mean, it was top of the line, the best of the best of the best. And as you mentioned, sorbet, there was an electric sorbet maker on board. Can you believe that? Which has to
0: have just seemed fantastic. I mean, yeah, I it mean, must have seemed like a, an Instapot right. today. Exactly. It would be like today's <laughs> Instapot.
1: And there was an ice cream maker on board. And, um, that's, that was his job. He was the ice cream maker and they called him the ice man. So I started trying to find out more about what he did. Did he, you know, manage the ice for the ice boxes? But there was electricity. So,
0: so they made the ice.
1: Yeah. They made yeah. ice yeah. cream. And, um, this man's story, this young man's story, he was 19 years old. He was from Inwil, Switzerland and he was on his crossing to across the the uh, Atlantic on the Titanic he had told his parents if i make this crossing i'll be able to get any job in culinary in any of the best hotels in london mm. that's how important the titanic was that's why it's still important today and um and he did not make it out he he did not survive and i yeah, i mean, i love the story of him because yeah, um, he was young man making a go of it and he was born in a wine shop. Adolf Mattman was his name from Inwell, Switzerland. And I, I was able to get in touch with someone who, um, was, is very close to his relatives and he was able to share a lot with me. And, um, yeah, so that was his job making the ice cream. They had amazing state of the art capabilities that I think most people that I talk with about this, Jennifer, they're just shocked to think of the electricity and all the different things. I'm
0: shocked to think of it. And and I, you know, I spend a lot of time in that period um, in research and it, it blows. And I think anytime we think about taking machinery like that and putting it on a ship, it becomes even more fantastical. And one detail that you bring up in the book that I just sort of thought, whoa, was that they had a completely kosher kitchen as well.
1: Yes. And wow. A little little note that's <laughs> kind of tucked away in the history books, but there are books about it, about the Titanic and the kosher meals. Um, you know, I read somewhere at some point that there were even cases many, many years ago where people didn't make the crossing because they were that adherent to kosher food and kosher rules. And, um, you know, if there wasn't kosher food on board, they just wouldn't need it. Now, I don't.
0: One aspect of the book, and it, again, is such a beautiful book. It almost reminds me of a vintage scrapbook. It's got um, pictures and lots of Art Nouveau embellishments. Was that part of the design idea? How much of the design were you involved in? Well,
1: It was really nice, the publisher, to keep me in the loop. And everything I saw, I just said, oh, I love it. I love it. I just, you know, never had a problem with anything they were doing. It was fantastic. And at first I saw the ink blue and I thought, what is this? But it turned out to be a really great technique for getting the photos included. And to me, the photos are really Uh important. So I was glad that they
0: did that. The photos really make it. Yeah. Um, And where do those all come from? The photos? A variety
1: yeah. of places, some of them were uh given to me by survivor family members, and many of them were things that I found in newspapers um just different I, I give a lot of credit to uh, the Molly house Molly Brown House Museum in denver
0: and where's that in denver, in the, in yeah denver. they
1: provided several of those photos and um several of them were from the Library of Congress um, you know, a whole variety of places.
0: And can I ask you about, uh, again, putting the book together? You had this passion for the Titanic. Um, you had your interest in food. Did it begin with the idea of food as the fulcrum and then sort of these offshoots? Or did you imagine a different kind of book? Or how did you arrive at the... A very interesting way you've organized the facts because we get in each chapter we get so so much detail but but vignettes and portraits of the people who were on board and the recipes and the um the food and the drink it's just it's very unique way of presenting uh material like this and i think it's it's it makes it really really readable Oh, that's
1: great to hear i'm really glad to hear that i started to think at first how do we extrapolate to turn what was a 350 word magazine article about the food and drinks into uh, a 300 and some page book. How do you do that? And I thought, well, you know, by looking at people like the popcorn vendor, he fits because it's food related. Um, There were people that wrote letters home to their family members about what they ate that first day they were aboard the ship. So we were able to, you know, not only learn about the food, but about the people. And one of those men was um, a, an amazing man, Adolphus Salfeld, who had, he had been carrying perfume samples with him. And so I was able to tell the story about how they found the perfume samples at the wreck site um, because he wrote a letter home to his wife telling in great detail about the first fabulous lunch that he had on April 10th when he, after he left Southampton. And so he sort of, you know, made it into the book that way. And I loved that he did because he had such an amazing story. He survived the Titanic, but only to be met with all the scorn of the people that were judging him for having boarded a lifeboat, even though it was women and children first. And many of them did not survive. So he would spend hours all night going through the streets of London, unable to sleep, his chauffeur patch would drive him around, helping him get to sleep. And, um, I was able to meet his great niece, actually a great granddaughter, because he had adopted her, um, her mother, or his, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It was his great niece. I was thinking about something else there. Um, it's a little complicated because her great grandfather, her, her grandfather, Was actually one of the men that wrote the first letter from the Titanic, Paul Danby. And that's why I got confused because he was seeing off her uncle at Southampton. And before he did, he took some of the Titanic stationery that was in the room in the, in his, um, his, uh, uncle's cabin and wrote a note to his wife. So I digress there, but I wanted to share how, you know, that interesting connection. And anyway, so we looked at people like that. And fit them into this tidy composition of all about food and style. We looked at the chefs, Mm -hmm. the cooks, ice cream maker, anyone who had, not, not every one of them, but the people that had, you know, stories that interest me, I thought that that would interest other people as well.
0: Well, I think you've picked up on that successful upstairs, downstairs, uh, another thing that has the Titanic in it, come to think of it. Um, that, that sort of you present everything from John Jacob Astor of the fourth down to the popcorn man. And it's, it's just such an exciting read. Um, and, and you really feel like you are on board. Um, you're the, that, you know, you're, you're setting sail from Southampton. Have you ever been on a transatlantic cruise? No, I haven't. Well, well, I think you, you must now, or, are, or would you be nervous about it?
1: No, I wouldn't be. I, I had been invited to go on the cruise that they had on the Centennial, the crossing that they did, and I had to work.
0: <laughs> now, I wish I would have said, <laughs> I'm going on vacation,
1: but it was a bad time to take a vacation. But I regret it so much, I wish I could have gone on that cruise.
0: Well, I hope a cruise. I hope a cruise is in your future because you, you write it, you bring it to life so well in this book. I think it would be fun um, to do the actual journey. Um, I know that there are tons of people who do Titanic dinner parties. Am I right about? that? Oh yes, that's right that's a that. thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that for them, your book is going to be such a treasure trove of um, actual recipes and ideas and inspiration for. Titanic themed dinners. Yeah.
1: So several years ago, Rick Archbold and Dana McCauley came out with this fabulous book called The Last Dinner on the Titanic. Very close to the title that uh, my book has, only a little one word off, The Last Dinner. And it was a real microscopic look at that last meal. And ever since that book came out with, again, with inspired recipes and recipes that are very close to what actually would have been on board that night, Uh, everyone around the world, Jennifer, started having their own dinner parties. And that's when that really became popular. And and what we were hoping to do with this book is even inspire, you know, cocktail parties, cheese, other things, rather than that last full um, dinner, which can be very complicated and very laborious. But what this um, book does is hopefully inspires people to think about you know, like, one of the things I did for my party was I had um, different cheeses that were cost-conscious that resembled the first-class cheeses that were sky-high prices. Mm-hmm. Um, like, instead of Edom cheese, we had mimolette, which is oh, right. okay. a, a very um, budget-friendly cheese. And we look at oyster safety, like, how to shuck an oyster safely so that you can actually feel comfortable entertaining at home with oysters.
0: I think for many people, that's a daunting task. It's, it's not for us. I have a husband who's a whiz at opening oysters. So I'm very lucky. Um, Good. Yeah. Because I think there's nothing better. And oysters are just everywhere on the Titanic, aren't they?
1: They are. Yeah.
0: Um, and you have that wonderful oysters à la russe, um, recipe, which I definitely is another one to try. Do you have a favorite recipe from the, from the book, Veronica?
1: I have so many, and I love the <laughs>
0: chocolate eclairs.
1: It's so hard to pick. I can't pick one, but there are some that I just absolutely love. And I, I really love them all because of the story behind each one. The chocolate eclairs, to me, is really special because Gail Gans, uh provided that recipe, and truly, it's an honor to Charles Jockin, who was a French pastry shop and working as a baker on this crossing, though. Um, I love the spring pea souffle that Michael Laschowitz provided. Uh, it's just a bright, vibrant color and lovely and flavorful. Uh, you know, I, I can't even begin to pick one.
0: And how about a favorite cocktail? Because oh, you have I, so many wonderful cocktails. Yes, um And, and you I, write about them so well.
1: Oh, thank you. The, there are a couple that I have to... Can I name, like, two or three?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Please do. Yeah. I
1: love the Clover Club. Uh, it was invented in Philadelphia, and I used to live there, and um, it actually, ironically, it became popular in New York, actually, though. And it was in John Jacob Astor IV's hotel that it became popular. It was invented in Philadelphia at what is now the Bellevue Hotel. But Later on is when it became popular in New York um, in John Jacob Esther IV's hotel. So, so many amazing Titanic ties to history. And then I love it because it's made of egg whites and a little bit of lemon and some raspberry simple syrup. So it's great for Valentine's Day. I made one for, you know, around Easter time. It's just a really pretty drink. So that's why I love that one because it's very iconic of the Edwardian drinks. And I absolutely love the Robert Burns. I love it, the flavor, and I love that drink because that drink is what I had when I went to the Waldorf Astoria, the hotel that Jen Jacob a 4th owned many years ago. And it was in Peacock Alley, which at that time was managed by um, Frank Chiappa, who has contributed many recipes to the book. And he redid the Waldorf Astoria Bar book many years ago, um, about three years ago, I think it is now. And Frank's just been such an amazing source of information and a terrific support to me with this whole book project. Um, That is where I learned that the Robert Burns comes with a very special garnish, Ah. a shortbread cookie. Oh, Uh, it has a cookie for it. You don't serve it without the cookie.
0: And why so, the cookie?
1: Why the cookie? Uh, well, because the whole tie into Scotland. Okay. And somewhere someone thought this would be neat. And I'm so glad they did. And um, interestingly enough, Robert Burns was from Dumfries, Scotland. And there was someone else aboard who was aboard the Titanic. The first violinist was from Dumfries, Scotland. And he has a a book dedicated, several books dedicated just to him. His name was John Jock Hume. And um, he, he has a, an amazing story. So,
0: And he's um, part of the band that played on, playing Abide yes. by Me. Yeah, yes. I don't know how you keep all these things in your head. Um, <laughs> <to be laughs> it's an astonishing piece of work. And it's just um, a marvelous resource for anyone who wants to know more about the Gilded Age and the Titanic and the food of the Edwardian era. I I just, think it's a, it's a marvelous accomplishment and I loved reading it. And I'm looking forward to cooking from it. Well, that's
1: really wonderful to hear. I hope that others can feel like that as well so that they can be inspired by the stories of these amazing people. Well,
0: it's, it, it is an astonishing piece of work. Tell me, Veronica, what, what are you working on now?
1: Well, right now I have been really working hard on the podcast series. Oh,
0: good. Okay. Yeah.
1: And getting the, telling the story through the internet.
0: And can you tell listeners where they might find that? Or is right, it it's, not yet published?
1: It, no, it is. It's out online okay. and it's history on the net, history uh-huh. unplugged. And right now we are, my co-host Scott Rank, um, had this great idea to have a sweepstakes. Where you can win a free book, oh wow! So okay. um, yeah, so kind of fun and uh, really neat. Who wouldn't love to win something over a, a podcast, right? So uh, exactly. I was excited to hear about that.
0: That sounds great, and another book, hopefully, because um, it would be a shame if there wasn't one. But perhaps oh, in the future. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I hope so. Uh,
0: the and... food of the the food of the Concord, mm-hmm. maybe.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I mean, these people in the story, the book that I wrote here, I, these stories are just so fabulous. I can't imagine what would parallel that. I, it's just, I'm still blown away.
0: Well, I'm sure when you find it, Veronica, it's going to be um, a great success. Tell listeners where they can find out more about you. Um, do, you do you have a website? Well, or are on you on Facebook? social media? Facebook? Okay.
1: Instagram. I'm Food Stringer on Instagram and Twitter. We'll
0: put that in the show notes.
1: Okay. And uh, you can buy the book online at Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and
0: Amazon. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thank you, Veronica. We've been talking to Veronica Hinky about her marvelous new book, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking and Dining and Style. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremieva, for the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.